We are the best kept secret in the universe. We work for a highly funded yet unofficial government agency. Our mission is to monitor extraterrestrial activity on Earth. We are your best, last, and only line of defense. under arrest for violating sections 4153 of the Tycho Treaty. Step away from your busted-ass vehicle and put your hands on your head. You know how to use these things? No idea whatsoever. Men in Black. Protecting the Earth from the scum of the universe. Welcome to Right Men for the Job, where we appreciate you staring directly at the flash from your neuralized, I mean phone or computer or whatever. Thanks, we really appreciate you listening to instructions. Flash? Who said anything about a flash? There was no... Welcome to Reitman for the Job. I'm R. Yes, that's a totally plausible name. Today, we're talking about a series of Columbia pictures that are definitely not government cover-ups, the Men in Black movies. Our question comes from Kodos. Kodos asks, Men in Black totally came about because people at Columbia Pictures saw its similarities to Ghostbusters, right? Thank you, Kodos. You know, a lot of Ghostbusters fans assume this, and it's easy to see why. Ghostbusters and Men in Black are both comedies where people have unusual jobs. One company exterminates ghosts, and the other is a secret agency that polices aliens. Hey, they're both set in New York? They have distinctive tools or weapons? They both feature a lot of slime and goop? Heck, a lot of the ghosts and aliens could substitute for each other. A lot of the comedy in both series, I mean, especially when the comedy works for either property, is applying the mundane to the fantastic. Oh, your place is haunted. Well, we're booked solid right now. We'll clear the ghosts from your place in two months from now, okay? Meanwhile, the men in black go, know that celebrity you think is weird? Alien. But also, aliens are just regular people. They go through customs, same as you do at the airport, and they like coffee and beer, and some of them smoke. That's the comedy. But did Men in Black in 97 really take inspiration from Ghostbusters? Doing some research, I'm not so sure, and now I think the similarities might be coincidence more than anything else. Frank Price and Don Steele, the executives who greenlit Ghostbusters 1 and 2 respectively, well, they were both long gone. Also, MIB ending up at Columbia Pictures wasn't a big decision like it was with Ghostbusters, but really it was more of a series of business relationships that were already in place. I'll be explaining this business side to you in a few moments. 
Also, why I really question this now is because it was director Barry Sonnenfeld who thought the Men in Black should work out of New York. If you think about traditional gray alien stories, they should really be out in the desert, right? Roswell, New Mexico? That's even where the original comics are set. So we'll get into the production right away, but just to sum it up, I don't really see any evidence that the people at Columbia were thinking, yeah, another Ghostbusters. Maybe somebody saw that. But my point is, there really are bigger things at play here. I want to talk about my relationship to Men in Black. I'm fairly certain I didn't see it in theaters, which would kind of make sense since it's PG-13, and I wasn't 13 yet. I was a good boy. But I remember it being a pretty big deal, and seeing Will Smith's music video. I had the VHS in 98 or 99, though. I love it. The VHS case was just a little bit shiny. I watched that tape a lot. So it's very weird that five years later, when Men in Black 2 came out, I just didn't care. I didn't see it in theaters, didn't buy or rent it, and then 10 more years go by and I saw ads for Men in Black 3 and it's a time travel movie. My instinct was to go, oh, they're going back in time? They must be running out of ideas. But today, I've purchased a nice Blu-ray set of the movies, including International, and I'm glad I've finally seen all of them and we can go through the series together. Oh, and hey, Canadians! As of 2021, CTV has a deal with Sony Pictures. Go to ctv.ca, search for Men in Black, and you'll find the first three movies and the cartoon show. It's free in Canada, and you don't need an account or anything. But also a heads up, free also means it's not perfect. These video players won't play on my computer's Firefox browser, but they will play on my phone. Huh. Push the little red button. And you may want to put on a seatbelt. Let's travel back to before the movie, to 
1990. Before we get to Columbia Pictures, there was the comic written by Lowell Cunningham and drawn by Sandy Carruthers. You will uh, notice that the artist Sandy Carruthers is not credited as a creator of Men in Black in the film series. That is not a good sign. I've read the early 1990 Men in Black comics. They're okay. The first comic isn't even about aliens. It's just introducing us to the organization. In fact, the Men in Black don't exclusively police aliens, but instead are just the intimidating, unknowable government agency that handles anything weird in America. In a way, it's like Kolchak or the X-Files, where the premise is investigating the supernatural just in general. In their first miniseries, the Men in Black tangle with a cult that traffic a powerful drug. Then in another story, a demon is accidentally summoned to Earth by kids playing Dungeons and Dragons. A funny enough gag that D&D can really be satanic and dangerous, but it just so happens that the kids made an innocent mistake. It's the second issue, with alien encounters at a farmhouse, which really inspires the first movie. Some of Kay's, that's Tommy Lee Jones, some of Kay's lines are even straight out of that comic. They drive up to the house and he says, Don't go in just yet. Give folks the wrong impression. Makes things run smoother. Also, after neuralizing the people inside, you didn't see a UFO. Swamp gas from a weather balloon was trapped in a thermal pocket and refracted light from Venus. The whole point of that line is that strung together, it just becomes gibberish. It's fun. But the scariest gag, a bit of wordplay, is in the comic too. A voice from the alien tells the farmer to surrender his weapon. You can have my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. Your proposal is acceptable. I won't spoil the comic, as it goes in a different direction from the movie. One thing I will say is that story isn't about saving the Earth. It's smaller stakes than that. So I've read some of those Men in Black comics. They're okay. The focus isn't always on aliens. Jay is white, and basically has no personality except for being an okay guy. But like Will Smith in the movie, his function is to learn about all this weird stuff along with the audience. A big difference is how much of a jerk Agent K is, to the point of almost being evil. The overarching theme is that the Men in Black are so secretive, so clandestine, that while they will save people, agents like K aren't above letting people die or have civilians' lives totally ruined just to keep the agency a secret. So J, who will become Will Smith's character, is the only one who goes the extra mile to try to piece people's lives back together. In the movie, this streak of empathy becomes a joke, with him telling the wife at the farmhouse that she dumped her husband, or insisting that people receive happy memories. Oh, there is one more running gag that would make it into the movies. Agent K reveals that a lot of the weird or science fiction media the public sees in the world actually represents the truth. The 50s movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, wasn't just a movie, but a documentary. The game Space Invaders literally stopped an invasion of Earth somehow. It's impossible for me to fire a pistol. If you'll check my medical records, you'll see I have a crippling arthritis in my index fingers. Look at them! I got it from Space Invaders in 1977. Oh yeah, that was a pretty addictive video game. Video game? Fun. Of course, in the movies, they do things like pick up junk tabloid magazines, the National Enquirer, or even worse stuff. In the second movie, a bad Unsolved Mysteries knockoff dramatizes a low-budget sci-fi scene, 
only for it later to be revealed that, visuals aside, the show was telling the truth. So the Men in Black had two comic book miniseries in 1990 and 91. Written by Lowell Cunningham and drawn by Sandy Carruthers, the comic was published by Malibu Comics. Not familiar with Malibu? I'm not going to go into all their ins and outs, but hey, if you're familiar with Image Comics, Spawn and Savage Dragon and other hot 90s properties, Malibu was actually Image's original publisher, just for 92 and 93. In 1994, Marvel Comics purchased Malibu. The Men in Black wouldn't cross over with Spider-Man or the X-Men or anyone, but some of the other Malibu characters did before disappearing forever. Marvel only really did one more comic following up on the original series, plus an adaptation of the first movie that original writer Lowell Cunningham also wrote. So that's Malibu, which was absorbed by Marvel Comics and today is no longer a going concern. I'm not sure, but I believe Marvel, and now their parent company Disney, I believe Marvel and Disney have no stakes in the Men in Black property. They haven't republished any of the Men in Black comics, never put them into a collection. In fact, that's true for I believe the entirety of the Malibu line of comics, so it's a situation where the creators profited off their work, but Marvel can't control characters like Men in Black. Again, that's me speculating, but Marvel's been great about reprinting material lately, and Men in Black comics would definitely be something they'd want to reprint if there was a cut in it for them. Two people who read the original 1990 and 91 MIB comics were the husband and wife team of Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald. If you're familiar with the 80s movie War Games, where a young Matthew Broderick accidentally hacks into NORAD's missile systems, that was co-written by Walter Parks. He was also off and running in 1990 by being one of the producers on Awakenings, the movie directed by Penny Marshall and starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. You start to get noticed in Hollywood when your movie is nominated for a lot of Academy Awards. But anyway, Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald married, and since then they've been working together as a team, which is wonderful. I love it. On the first movie's commentary, the first thing director Barry Sonnenfeld talks about is, Walter and Laurie are great people. Also, they're really attractive. They're a great-looking couple. <laughs> I don't know why, but I find that amusing. A few things happened in the early 90s. One is that Laurie and Walter discovered the Men in Black comics, saw potential in it, and bought the movie and TV rights. Uh, the fact that the movies always say the original creator was Lowell Cunningham suggests to me that he owned the concept, and artist Sandy Carruthers did not. So Laurie and Walter had the MIB concept, and they got people writing early script treatments. Being producers, they also signed a first-look deal with Columbia Pictures. Ah, things are coming together now. So Columbia is going to get a first crack at anything McDonald and Parks have cooking up. But there's yet another big thing happening. Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald became good friends with Steven Spielberg. <laughs> the absolute best friend to have in Hollywood. Something I've spoken about before in other podcasts, it's not enough to just be talented. For big movie projects, you often need people you can rely on to make movies happen. For Ivan Reitman, it's been his pal Joe Medjuk for years and years. For Steven Spielberg, he relied on producer Kathleen Kennedy. Sidebar here. Look, if you're a Star Wars fan and complain that Kathleen Kennedy isn't good at her job, then you don't know squat. Kathleen Kennedy ran Amblin for years, making E.T., Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Jurassic Park...
do you think new Star Wars is bad? Okay, fine, if you say so. But that's not her concern. Kathleen Kennedy's real concern is making productions work well and turning in monster profits. And she consistently does that. Hey, to drive home the point, I think George Lucas and Steven Spielberg hold the two top spots as people generating the most money in Hollywood. You get what I mean? The movies they have either directed or produced have made the most money. Kathleen Kennedy, working as a producer and executive producer, is in the number three spot. She has had the third most profitable career in Hollywood ever. And yes, Kathleen Kennedy wants movies to be good as well. But being good is really the director more than anyone else. But even there, it's a team effort. Kennedy's job isn't making a good movie. Her job is making them blockbusters. Do you see the distinction? So if you have complaints against Kathleen Kennedy, you're not in touch with reality. She's the best at that job. <clears throat> One of my patented sidetracks. Anyway, after years of working directly for Steven Spielberg at Amblin, culminating with Jurassic Park in 1993, Kathleen Kennedy and her husband, Frank Marshall, were ready to go into business for themselves. They'd produce Congo and Twister and The Sixth Sense, lots of memorable movies, and they'd often work with Spielberg again. But anyway, Steven Spielberg needed another set of steady hands back at Amblin, and the people he picked were Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald. Ta-da! Steven Spielberg had them in charge of Amblin starting in 1994. Then, when Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and David Geffen founded DreamWorks, a subsidiary of Amblin, by the way, Parks and McDonald were in charge of DreamWorks as well. Another sidebar, isn't it funny how often Jeffrey Katzenberg pops up on this podcast? He bought the distribution rights to Ivan Reitman's film Meatballs. Jeffrey Katzenberg was also passed over as president of Disney for Mike Ovitz. Jeffrey Katzenberg is all over in my history lessons. Anyway, back to the matter at hand. Kathleen Kennedy left Amblin, so Steven Spielberg asked Walter Parks and Lori McDonald to take her place. They ran Amblin and DreamWorks for years. Today, Walter Parks and Lori McDonald have left Amblin and DreamWorks and are back to just producing their own projects with Parks plus McDonald Productions. If you see their logo at the start of a movie, it resembles a chair. They've produced the documentary, He Named Me Malala, about Malala Yousafzai. Also, they own the film rights to Barbie, so you can expect a big-budget Barbie movie from them in the future. But let's tie all these threads together. You've got a 1990 comic book, with movie and TV rights purchased by producers Laurie McDonald and Walter Parks. This married team also have a first-look deal with Columbia Pictures. Add in the fact that the team now also run Amblin, so when Columbia agrees to film Men in Black, now Amblin is also in the mix, and Steven Spielberg is executive producer. Ta-da! See, this all makes sense in the end. I will spoil things for you right now. The first Men in Black movie is the best one. It doesn't get any better than this, folks. I think that's partly because it's about introducing us, and Will Smith's character, to the hidden world of aliens living on Earth. Tommy Lee Jones is stone-faced no matter what, which is perfect playing off against Will Smith's big reactions. Speaking of Tommy Lee Jones, part of the joke, part of the comparison that you should understand about Men in Black, he's the straight cop. Yeah, yeah, we get it. The Men in Black is like a police procedural, only with aliens. 
But really, I mean, Tommy Lee Jones is the uber straight-laced cop. If you're old enough, what you're really supposed to get is that Kay is like Joe Friday from Dragnet. He's all business. Just the facts, ma'am. All business to the point where Jay gets frustrated with him, and it becomes funny to us when an alien grows a new head or tentacles, and Tommy Lee Jones just does not react, and responds like this is a totally normal thing. In a nutshell, there's the humor of Men in Black. We, and Jay, are introduced to a cop procedural where you never know what crazy type of alien is hiding underneath that human disguise. And meanwhile, Kay plays a Joe Friday kind of role, cool and unresponsive to all the craziness. We'll get to it later, but the MIB sequels all need different hooks other than just introducing us to this premise. Because of that, they all have varying degrees of success, trying to find other ways to be funny. So, the movie production. Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald hired Ed Solomon to write the screenplay. Ed Solomon has co-written all the Bill and Ted movies, and he, uh, co-wrote the Super Mario Brothers movie. Hey, he did as he was told, and besides, that's another movie featuring monster people and puppets, so I could see how that experience would help him write Men in Black. I think Columbia must have liked him after this movie, because they hired him to co-write more scripts for them, including the first Charlie's Angels movie. I've mentioned this already, but at first Ed Solomon was told to set things in secret bases and out in the desert, where Roswell-style alien encounters are supposed to happen. When director Barry Sonnenfeld finally signed up, he said, Look, set it in New York. There's weird people there, so audiences can imagine some of them secretly are alien beings. A variety of underground lairs got consolidated into MIB headquarters in New York. And you know, I never even thought about that before, that the MIB should actually be situated out in the desert, but this was the right call. You don't need the agents driving hundreds of miles to get to the next plot point. Instead, Will Smith can run from one spot to another. It's a lot more dynamic in New York City. The only holdover of this left in the movie is the opening scene in a desert, which is really a soundstage, by the way. Oh, I mentioned the director, Barry Sonnenfeld. Parks and McDonald really wanted him after seeing the two Adams Family movies he did. Those had comedy, weird people, and special effects, so they were right that he would probably be a good fit. He said no for a while, just because he was focusing on the movie Get Shorty at first, but after that wrapped, he finally said yes. He'd direct all three of the Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones movies. It sounds like Tommy Lee Jones was even harder to convince, and I get it, you tell him this is going to be a special effects heavy movie, and he imagines the hundreds of ways this could go wrong, including trying to play comedy off of puppets and CGI stuff. And it sounds like it took Steven Spielberg to convince Jones. Steven told him how great this was going to be, how excited he was to be a part of it. Yeah, if anything is going to change an actor's mind, personal assurances from Steven Spielberg is probably at the top of the list. Well, okay, money too, of course, but the next in line is probably Steven Spielberg. But what I do love is that Tommy Lee Jones sounds so positive about Men in Black in retrospect. He liked working with Will Smith, liked Barry Sonnenfeld, so I listened to him on a commentary of the first movie, and he's just excited about the whole thing. He says, on the page, I couldn't really tell how funny this was, but you watch it and it's all great. It all works. Meanwhile, I haven't heard or read any interesting stories about Will Smith taking the part of Agent J. In 1995, he had done Bad Boys for Columbia Pictures, so Columbia had a good working relationship with him, 
and knew his star was rising. Smith had also done Independence Day, another action movie with aliens. I guess Men in Black was just a good business decision for everyone involved, and the timing worked out great. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was just wrapping up its final season, and then Smith immediately went to work on this movie. So imagine that. You know that visual of Will Smith standing in the empty living room set on Fresh Prince? Just a few days later, he was off filming Men in Black in New York. Eric Brevig supervised the special effects at ILM. He also supervised the special effects in Scrooged, Total Recall, Pearl Harbor, and Honey, I Shrunk the Audience for Disney Parks. His most recent movie was supervising the effects for Dr. Sleep. And he's directed, too. He's directed Dan Aykroyd, voicing the title character in the Yogi Bear movie. Hey, listen, they needed a special effects person to be in charge of Yogi Bear. I've never seen it. Guess I'll have to do it if I ever cover all of Dan Aykroyd's movies. Rick Baker was in charge of makeup, and everyone points to Vincent D'Onofrio's look, the way he gets more and more zombified as the movie goes on, as just fantastic makeup. And speaking of Vincent D'Onofrio, holy cow, he gives a fantastic performance in this movie. He really is the secret sauce to the whole thing. Acting funny and menacing and inhuman. In fact, people have recognized he's so good, there's an oral history on Vulture just about his performance in this. It's by Rachel Handler from Vulture in 2019. Rather than me go on and on about him, just go ahead and read that oral history. It's good. That's 2019, Vulture's An Oral History of Vincent D'Onofrio's Perfect Men in Black Sugar Water Scene. You know, I'm going to talk about Linda Fiorentino up top, because I think she's great too, and definitely doesn't get enough praise in this. She plays the medical examiner, Dr. Weaver. She's hard-edged enough. I think she fits perfectly with the comedy. I think her scenes are all great. But, everyone... Fans in Barry Sonnenfeld, and everybody, always overlook her. And if you search around online, Linda Fiorentino is always mentioned in those lists of actresses who are reportedly difficult to work with. Sonnenfeld didn't ask her back, and director Kevin Smith, on Dogma, is the one who has called her difficult without giving any proof or explaining what he means, at least as far as I know of. So, is there any truth to that? Or have directors been jerks to her? an actress who didn't have the same clout as the big male stars. <sighs> Speaking of Linda Fiorentino's role, there's some flirting with Will Smith, then a funny scene where she's in danger, but Jay keeps misinterpreting her as her coming on to him strong. Notice what's not in the movie? An actual romance between them, and no sex or even a kiss at the end. On the one hand, that's kind of refreshing, because that's not really needed in this movie where we learn about aliens. You might also notice there's no kiss, specifically between a white woman and the black male lead. Yeah, that's a thing I know Will Smith and directors who work with him have been aware of for years and years. It's been conscious choices, made for obviously crappy racist reasons. Hey, I think I know the first time Will Smith has finally broken this crappy unspoken rule kind of imposed on his career. I believe the first time he kissed a white woman on screen was with Margot Robbie in 2015 for a movie called Focus. Wait, I've never heard of this movie. Huh. Will Smith and Margot Robbie kissed, and it wasn't in Suicide Squad? Okay. 
just finishing up casting, you have Rip Torn playing the boss of MIB, Zed. Hey, is he supposed to be Canadian? You know, we say the letter Z instead of Z. Just joking around. Whatever, eh? If you can't figure out that this is sort of like James Bond stuff, only heightened and sillier, the fact that the boss isn't M, but the last letter of the alphabet should clue you in. Hey, Rip Torn voiced Zeus in Disney's Hercules, which debuted less than a week before Men in Black. Rip Torn was having a good summer in 1997. Back to Ghostbusters comparisons again, and other blockbusters in general, Will Smith had a big hit with his Men in Black song, and it's hard to imagine today but it was a big deal at the time to have a music video where the CGI multi-million dollar alien would dance with the lead singer and backup dancers. It's quaint today to be impressed by a CGI character, but it was a big selling point back in 97. <laughs> and the alien here is also a joke. In the movie, it's Mikey, who's a person, but also kind of a snarling beast with a weird voice. In the music video, the alien starts hitting the high notes in a woman's voice. The song is very on the nose, saying the name of the movie over and over, just like Ghostbusters. in black remember that just in case we have a face to face and make contact the title held by me m.i.b means what you think you saw you did not see so don't blink be what was dead is now going black suit with the black ray bands on walk a shadow move the silence guard against extraterrestrial violence but yo we ain't on no government list we straight don't exist no names and no fingerprints saw something strange watch your back because you never quite know where the m.i.b's is at uh and But let's get to the movie itself. I'm not going to cover the whole movie beat by beat, but here are just some observations. When you're introduced to Will Smith running, he's outside Grand Central Station in New York. If you're a Marvel fan, he's in the same spot where all the Avengers assemble in that circle for the first Avengers movie. Only, you know, Avengers filmed on a set that resembled that spot, while Will Smith was actually running here. Who is the real hero, I ask you? Oddly enough, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones would film inside Grand Central Station for Men in Black 2. Much like when filming Ghostbusters, the actors came up with a lot of their own dialogue here too. Tommy Lee Jones came up with most of his dialogue in the opening, including the Spanish, which he's fluent in. Will Smith came up with, It'd be rain and black people in New York, after he jumps off that bridge. Will Smith chases after that disguised alien to the Guggenheim Art Gallery, it's perfect because it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright and looks weird. Plus, you get that great shot of Will Smith running up in circles. By the way, those two locations, Grand Central Station and the Guggenheim, means their chase doesn't entirely make sense. Those locations are like 20 minutes apart by car. I get it that Smith catches a ride and runs the alien down, but it also means he was just trailing the alien from the back of that truck for like 20 minutes, not doing anything. Oh well, movie magic. Vincent D'Onofrio gives a fantastic performance. I mean, he figured out how to act as an alien crammed inside the skin of a human, just being physically awkward. Speaking of which, 
A lot of the comedy in this movie is about things impossibly fit inside other things. He shoves his spaceship inside the back of a truck that should not hold it. Just like how a giant bug should not fit inside Vincent D'Onofrio. Huh. I don't know if Barry Sonnenfeld or other people were thinking about this, but that humor, fitting big things into little spaces, that actually thematically works with a galaxy fitting inside a jewel. Neat. I have no idea if that was an accident or not. Tony Shalhoub is the alien in the pawn shop who gets his head blown off. Wearing a fake eye and teeth and prosthetics to look weird, he'd be in the sequel, and even in the third movie, just in a cameo as Will Smith walks by him. Notice that it's Universal Pawnbroker. Honey, this one's eating my popcorn. Hey, have you ever wondered about the rest of that joke? Well, it's dirty, but I think we can get away with telling it here. I keep a clean tag on this podcast, and I'm sticking to that because I won't actually be saying any dirty words. But if we're all being especially sensitive, please pause now if you're in front of kids. Okay? Three, two, one. Ding. Ahem. A husband and wife go to a movie theater and order some popcorn. That same night, for some bizarre reason... A farmer brought his favorite rooster in to see the movie as well. He had to conceal the rooster in his pants, and then, you see, he unzips to let his rooster out. The wife notices this and whispers to her husband, Honey, that man is letting his cock out. Just ignore him, the husband says. You've seen a cock before. Yeah, but this one's eating my popcorn. There you go. It's not very funny, is it? Moving right along. MIB headquarters are at the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel Authority Building. Technically, it's called the Hugh L. Carey Tunnel Ventilation Building. So in real life, that building lets exhaust from cars exit its roof. It's almost the southern tip of Manhattan Island, and if Will Smith walked around to the opposite side of it, we'd see there's a toll road that goes underneath it and continues down under the East River. You'd come out in Brooklyn. Oddly enough, this is not the same tunnel they rocket through near the end of the movie. That's the Queen's Midtown Tunnel, farther north. Oh, also, the scene where Will Smith is sitting on a bench, contemplating whether he'll join the Men in Black. He's only half a mile south of that building. See, the idea, that's not really properly communicated visually, the idea is that Will Smith is contemplating joining the group right outside that building. If they raised the camera a couple of feet and maybe leveled those trees as well, you would be able to see that weird ventilation building. Speaking of Will Smith's Jay thinking about joining the MIB, this movie does a neat trick. You don't really think about Jay's family or friends, or actually how sad it would be to give up all your loved ones just to join this group. Yeah, Kay kind of talks about it in the abstract, and we'll touch on it with his character later with A Lost Love, but we don't really care about Will Smith giving up his life because we don't see any loved ones in his life. All he has are bad co-workers. No mention of parents or a girlfriend, so you just don't really think about it, and he's good to go. Yeah, works. But back to MIB headquarters, going into what's obviously a set now. There's that security guard and a giant fan and a vent. It's just a funny visual, but it was also probably thrown in because if a New Yorker sees this movie, they might actually know what that building is for. Here, it looks like it's technically doing its job by circulating air out of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Huh. 
That means that security guard is breathing in car exhaust all day. That is not healthy. I want to talk about all the MIB headquarter sets. Mostly white, with lots of circles everywhere. They're supposed to look like 1960s space-age design. Notice that none of the screens are squares or rectangles. They're all ovals, like their modern design, but for the 1960s. That all thematically fits together, because that was the decade of America's space race with the Soviets. Plus you had the 1964 World's Fair in New York that showcased this look. And hey, that World's Fair will factor into the finale of the movie. This all comes together thematically and visually. Jumping ahead to when Will Smith really gets a good look at MIB HQ, that room is fun, it looks cool, but if you think about its function, you notice it doesn't make much sense. This is where the men in black are working on their top secret missions. They have their workstations here and talk about tracking down alien criminals. But it's also Earth Customs. You see aliens coming in, mingling in the workstation. That would be like if JFK Airport was in the exact same room as FBI agents working on their cases and all in an unsecured area. And then, the MIB armory, with noisy crickets and heavy blasters and balls that can destroy rooms, that armory is also here, convenient for any evil alien to steal from. Ha, it's just something I noticed, but it makes sense for introducing Jay to all the stuff in short order. But in fact, this all being in the same area actually comes up in the second movie. The villain can waltz into this room and take over everything. It wasn't a smart idea of the Men in Black, actually, to centralize everything into that one set. Moving on, it has nothing to do even with aliens, but I think the gag about awkwardly writing on a paper and pencil test might be my favorite joke in the movie. That actually began with the set design again, everything being white and 60s chic and round. The set designer got these funny-looking egg-shaped chairs, so then Sonnenfeld wrote this scene where only Will Smith is assertive enough to go grab the table. That's great. Moving out of the headquarters now. The scene with the two aliens dining together, and Vincent D'Onofrio, the bug, comes in and kills them. That's an interesting one. Oh, this is something obvious in retrospect. The very tall alien is played by Carol Striken. He's Lurch, the butler in Sonnenfeld's two Adams Family's movies. The scene in the diner. See, it was handy that they were speaking in a made-up alien language that was later subtitled. In the script, the two were actually hashing out a peace treaty between their two planets. See, that's also the joke, because one actor is short, and the other is incredibly tall. So of course the gag is, they're from two different species. This also explains why we don't see a little alien riding inside the tall man later. The tall man was supposed to be a different kind of alien being. Very late in the game, they changed the whole nature of the intergalactic plot, which kind of goes to show how unimportant the supposed plot really is compared to all the comedy in this movie. What the little jewel is, what alien empires are up to, and why there's an alien prince living on Earth all does not matter as much as just telling jokes. So yes, originally, two planets with different species were at war, but now in the movie, what we get is a kindly old alien living on Earth while protecting the galaxy, the MacGuffin of a jewel that contains a galaxy inside. We never learn why he was hiding out on Earth, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. The original idea was perhaps too complicated for viewers to track, but it probably made more logical sense 
because the whole idea was that these two aliens were using Earth as a neutral ground for them to hold peace talks in a little Ukrainian or Polish diner. The galaxy, the jewel, is a good thing to have in the movie to fight over, but the sequels would stick too closely to this idea. All the movies have MacGuffins, special little doohickeys with incredible powers. In 2, it's the light of Zartha, and the villain is after it. In 3, Agent K needs to establish the ArcNet, a special field generated by one tiny device that keeps some aliens out. Even in MIB International, an alien gives Tessa Thompson a doohickey that turns out to be a pocket-sized star that can devastate worlds. I get it. It's good to have a little object that heroes and villains can search for and battle over. But every one of these movies returns to that idea, and usually with a ticking clock, too. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Regarding that restaurant scene... Eh. These jokes can actually get problematic. I don't know if you noticed, but there's some nonsense words in neon at the window of this restaurant. And of course, the aliens order pierogies. The gag is, we're blurring the lines between what's foreign to America and what's actually alien, as in alien planets. That's a fine line you need to walk. One of the first jokes in the movie is a pun. There's an alien, a space alien, hiding amongst human aliens trying to sneak into the States. Here, a big deal isn't made out of it, and the movie seems sympathetic to these two aliens assassinated in the diner, but it's still subtly coding foreigners as strange. They're different, possibly inhuman, while American culture is the default Earth culture. Okay, maybe you think I'm overreacting here. I think this issue exists a bit in the first movie, but is largely benign. It, uh, it will rear up far uglier for a sequel. Ha. Will Smith has to help deliver a tentacle baby. Again, like Ghostbusters, there's a juxtaposition. Something we relate to, a woman about to give birth, but the reality is she's something with tentacles and the baby will be a cute little squid. And again, lots of slime coming out of it. Ah, the late 80s and 90s were the renaissance of slime. That was a real animatronic baby squid, by the way. It's not CGI. Oh, hey, also not as much CGI as you'd think. That's real footage of Will Smith getting thrown around. They put him on a soundstage and rigged him up to a device that flung him around. So that's really him most of the time flailing and screaming like that, sped up of course, and they just CGI in the tentacle and the car. Neat. There is the reveal of Frank the Pug. You and Agent J are thinking, okay, okay, I've seen some freaky people now, I get how this movie works now. And you see that skeletal man and think he'll be some weird thing underneath. But nope, it was the dog. We probably take that joke for granted now, but I guess anytime this played in front of a new audience, it was one of the biggest laughs of the movie, just subverting your expectations. Frank the Pug is voiced by puppeteer Tim Blaney. He also voiced and was a puppeteer of Johnny Five in the Short Circuit movies. He's also worked on The Muppets a lot, though I don't think he has a defined Muppet character he returns to. Hey, why does Frank know what the galaxy is? No reason, just because. Again, the plot of this movie really takes a backseat to just watching Smith and Jones come across weird creatures and situations. Yeah, so aliens want the jewel, and now there's a ticking clock until they destroy the Earth to get it. So, why was the jeweler, the alien, keeping this incredibly important thing on Earth? 
Who knows? Jay figures out that the only way left to fly off of Earth are the saucers, really observation platforms, from the world's fairgrounds in Flushing Meadows. I mentioned it already, but Jay and Kay rocket through the Queen's Midtown Tunnel. Without any traffic at all, and uh, also without a rocket car, but without traffic, getting over there from MIB headquarters would take 30 minutes. New York hosted the World's Fair on that site in 1939 and 1964. I could spend a podcast talking about important things that happened there both times. I mean, Albert Einstein was there in 1939 and gave a speech at its opening ceremony. The Unisphere, that big globe, was installed for the 1964 World's Fair, as well as the observation towers that kind of look like flying saucers. Like the MIB headquarters, much of 64's World Fair was designed with a space age in mind. Disney hosted several attractions that year. It's a Small World began as a ride here before moving to Disney Parks. In fact, Epcot, at Disney World, is really supposed to be a giant, permanent World's Fair like the one here in New York in 64. Oh, and most important of all, according to a deleted scene in Ghostbusters, Janine Melnitz attended the 64 World's Fair and got two commemorative coins there. She says they're lucky. Vincent D'Onofrio takes off in one of the spaceships, only for our heroes to shoot it down when it's flying over Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium was torn down in 2009, but it's directly north of Flushing Meadows Park. The sight of that ship makes Mets player Bernard Gilkey miss a pop fly. So we finally see Vincent D'Onofrio, who's been becoming more and more zombified, finally shed his skin and turn into a CGI bug. Will Smith's Jay helps save the world not by doing anything scientific or something very action hero-like, or vaguely like a super MIB agent. It's not super set up from his time as a New York cop, but he stomps on cockroaches and trash talks the alien, treating it like a gang member on the streets of New York, and that buys enough time for Kay and later Dr. Weaver to blow the monster up. But you see the heart of the joke again, right? There's this giant, scary insect. The world is on the line, and Will Smith's solution is to treat it like some thug on the street. The fantastic is bumping up against the familiar and mundane. That's like a lot of the jokes in Ghostbusters again, by the way. So to wrap up, Men in Black, still a very fun movie. I like it. If you haven't seen it in a long time, try watching it again. We are making a pit stop. Before the sequels, there was a cartoon series. I especially like this. The first movie came out in July of 1997. This show debuted in October of 97. Columbia Pictures was betting big time that Men in Black would be a success. And consider this. It would have been difficult for the movie production to share information on the tone of the movie, the jokes they expected to land, what characters to include that might hit big. It's not like Columbia handed the animation crew a completed reel of the movie during production. No, the movie and cartoon had to be made at the same time, so I'm very impressed that the cartoon is fairly in line with the movie. 
hey, let's back up and briefly explain what Columbia Pictures was doing in the late 90s. This is something I'll be covering next year with a history of Columbia Pictures, so to be super brief today, Columbia wanted to play catch-up to Disney and Warner Brothers. Disney and Warner Brothers had figured out how to be successful in children's cartoons. Think DuckTales, think Tiny Toons and Batman the Animated Series. No more farming your properties out to Filmation or Deke to make a cartoon based on something you owned. Now, in the 90s, you produced your cartoon show in-house and owned it entirely. Okay, yes, it was still sent overseas for actual animation back in the late 90s, but the storyboarding and the character designs and most importantly the ownership all happened in your own company. That was Disney and Warner Brothers, but Columbia Pictures, or Sony Pictures, you get me, didn't want to be left behind. Thus, they created Adelaide Productions. And who did they get to run Adelaide? Well, one person was Jeff Klein, who came at things from the writing side. But the other person is someone I mention every time I've done an episode on the real Ghostbusters, animator Richard Raines. Yeah, Sony hired the person in charge of animating the first few seasons of the real Ghostbusters. So this new subsidiary, Adelaide, got to work making cartoon series based on properties Sony cared about. In short order, they created Extreme Ghostbusters, a Godzilla animated series, and the Men in Black series. This also explains why these three shows look the same. They were all made by the same people. And this big push was all a response to what other companies were doing for television, and is really building off of what they learned a decade earlier with the success of The Real Ghostbusters at Deke. It's so informed by The Real Ghostbusters that they even hired Richard Raines. There's one big departure in their approach compared to how they handled The Real Ghostbusters. The theme song. For real Ghostbusters, Columbia knew Ray Parker Jr.'s song was a big deal, and they were also very concerned that kids not confuse their cartoon based on the hit movie versus the Filmation cartoon show. That's why Ray Parker Jr.'s song got covered and reused so much in the cartoon show. For Men in Black, even though they're mostly modeling themselves off their previous success of Ghostbusters, even though they have a hit song by Will Smith, eh... That is going to cost money, so let's just not use it. Huh. Yes, yes, the end credits of the Men in Black animated series has a similar beat to Will Smith's song. But this is all strange to think. In an alternate world, we can imagine Smith's Men in Black song still being used in a cartoon, still popping up in Men in Black movies decades later, but they just figured it was too expensive. One song, Ghostbusters, stays in the public consciousness, while the Men in Black song just doesn't because Sony figures it's too expensive. But anyway, the show. I remember watching the Men in Black cartoon sometimes as a kid. It was fine, but not my favorite. Maybe that's part of the reason why I wasn't interested in MIB sequels years later. Actually, remember I said you can watch Men in Black content on CTV's website? 
in preparation for this podcast, I just went ahead and watched the entire series, usually while doing the dishes. I'd say it's good, but not great. It's not quite special or funny enough to recommend revisiting. Watching it while doing the dishes is probably the right way to do things. Now, the big question from nerds, does this animated series fit in with the movies? I mean, are they the same continuity? Well, they're close. You can tell they're absolutely informed by the movie, but the short, definite answer is no. They cannot actually fit together. Even the real Ghostbusters, with all its little incongruities, matches up better to the Ghostbusters movies than the MIB cartoon does to the first movie. Or the second or third, for that matter. I won't go into every detail. You'd just have to watch it yourself. The MIB are under an abandoned Air Force base, for one thing, and the stuff with agents K and L don't work with the movie's continuity. But speaking of L, that was Linda Fiorentino's character, if you don't get me, but with Agent L, they totally pull a real Ghostbusters Egon. They make L blonde here, just like cartoon Egon became blonde. Also, you can totally tell some of the animators were very into the L character they created. An icy woman wearing a business suit and tight skirt, you say? Yeah, some of the animators were working out some stuff with her. The comedy... J and K are fine, and of course they're not voiced by Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. But hey, speaking of voice actors, Vincent D'Onofrio comes back several times. It's always a big deal, and he plays various alien bugs again, so he does variations of the Edgar voice he did in the original movie. So it's great whenever he returns. Another voice actor I want to mention is Charles Napier playing Zed. There's never been a clergal with a Zomborian retrieval department. I'll have and Bob clock this guy. Excuse me, gentlemen, are you the good old boys? Yeah, that's right. I'm Dr. McElroy, lead singer, driver of the Winnebago. Listen, I'd like to talk to you some, but running very late. My name is Jacob Stein, the American Federation of Musicians Union, Local 200. I've been sent here to see if you gentlemen are carrying your permits. Of what? Your union cards. May I see your cards, please? Suppose we ain't got no union cards and we go in there and start playing anyway. Now, what you gonna do about that? <laughs> that is awesome. So yes, connections. That was Charles Napier. He's McElroy, leader of the good old boys and the Blues Brothers. Lead singer, driver of the Winnebago. But I was talking about the comedy with J and K, which is supposed to be the central focus of the series. See, part of the problem is having inexperienced J screwing up and then Kay dryly explains the reality of the situation and either saves Jay's butt or they work together and stop a threat. And sometimes this comedy works, and sometimes it falls really flat. In bad episodes, you sometimes wonder why MIB keep Jay around at all if he's screwing up so much. Also, also, this bothered me for a while. The two will encounter something, let's say an alien. Jay says, I'm gonna blast it. K doesn't stop him. Then it doesn't work, and Jay gets hurt or thrown around or something. And only then K goes, by the way, these aliens multiply when shot. Or, these aliens need to be frozen. K is always explaining things to Jay after it's too late. I think he gets off on seeing his partner suffer, then gives Jay a hard time for it. And I get it, they're trying to make a comedy, but it gets irritating after a while. 
Also, also, remember how Will Smith commented on the black car in the movie? Hey, what if Agent J loved that car in this cartoon, but K would never let him drive it? Just treated him like a total child. Wouldn't that be funny, everyone? Let's make it a joke in every episode. Pfft. Oh, and hey, remember how there were those weird-looking little aliens in the movie, called the Worms, who drank coffee and smoked? Yeah, Richard Rainus and others definitely saw them and connected the dots and figured the Worms could be the Slimer of this cartoon. Just as Slimer was this food monster, the Worms become coffee monsters. It's fine in some episodes, irritating in others when the whole plots are built around them screwing things up because they want coffee, you guys. But absolutely, Richard Rainus and the rest of the crew were thinking of Slimer's dynamic when they plugged those worms into the cartoon. And that's about it. What's the best episode? There are some big episodes in season finales, usually revolving around a human named Alpha, who grafts alien organs onto his body. It's very intense for a kid's show. But for my money, the best episode is The Star System Syndrome. It's got a great hook that fits in with the central joke about MIB, that aliens live among us. You know all the alien special effects that appear in Hollywood movies? Well, most of them aren't suits and puppets, but aliens just appearing au naturel on movie sets. <laughs> that is a very fun idea, and it gets better. The xenomorph from the alien movies is just a regular guy, a regular alien guy that is, and bitter that his movie career is washed up. So you have the scariest alien, but he's voiced by Clancy Brown and complaining about his agent. Someone's bumping off alien actors, so the MIB have to unravel a mystery while meeting aliens that also stand in for the Predator and Teletubbies and ALF. Hey, remember ALF? Oh, speaking of Richard Rainus copying ideas from the real Ghostbusters, that episode also ends on a take-two gag. Take 2 being the real Ghostbusters episode that smooths over any of the differences between the cartoon and the Ghostbusters movie. Rainus, in charge of the whole series production, pulls the same trick here. Both real Ghostbusters and Men in Black, animated, have now done jokes where they're the real deal, and the movies we saw in theaters are both just fictions based off their cartoon counterparts. <laughs> Men in Black, the animated series, ran until the spring of 2001, Missing Men in Black 2 by Just a Year, which we'll cover right now. Hey, did you know Will Smith did another Men in Black song? Black suits coming, nod your head. It's fine, not super catchy. Again, it's just interesting to me that Ghostbusters has tied itself to Ray Parker Jr.'s song, while the Men in Black movies didn't do the same thing, even though Will Smith is a star of the series. Okay, this movie, Men in Black 2. 
I get the joke. Since we're past introducing Will Smith to the secret world, the hook now is, hey, remember all those bad sci-fi B-movies? What if they were actually real? What if Invasion of the Neptune Men, or Catwoman of the Moon, or all those dumb costumes and effects were real, and now our hip 2002 Men in Black stars had to tangle with all that moldy old stuff from the 50s and 60s? And hey, that is not a terrible hook for a movie, but it doesn't help that it boils down to only two jokes. One is that the villain is really a tentacle monster, and only looks like Lara Flynn Boyle in a 50s bouffant hairstyle because she saw a lingerie advertisement. The other gag is that an old TV show actually shows something that really happened with Agent K. Yeah, and? I'm not knocking that idea, just saying there needs to be more to it. There's almost no punchline. I think we're supposed to assume that Agent K tracking down an old VHS tape of all things is a very funny idea but it's just barely amusing. By the way, much like the first movie, the plot also doesn't make sense. Now that doesn't really matter. There's no reason for Kay to have made such a convoluted method to save the world, so this whole movie is only going to work if Kay, searching for an old VHS with Jay, is very, very funny. The comedy has to work because the plot is nonsense. Uh-oh. I will say this, though, the host of that taped show, an Unsolved Mysteries knockoff, is hosted by Peter Graves. He's a solid choice. Yeah, he starred in the Mission Impossible TV series, but he was also in a lot of those bad old movies, some of which were later featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Stuff like Red Planet Mars, Killers from Space, and Beginning of the End. Peter Graves was also the voice for A&E's biography series, so here, he's basically serving the same function, but almost parodying himself by talking so seriously about aliens visiting Earth and needing help from the men in black. Oh, and there's another problem with this movie. Frank, the dog, got the biggest laugh in the first movie, so Barry Sonnenfeld made the mistake of thinking people wanted more Frank. More Frank, everybody, all the time! So he becomes involved in the plot here. Some jokes are just, hey... What if Frank dressed up like a man in black? What if he sang a pop song to Will Smith? They lose track of the fact that Frank was funny in the first film because he was a surprise to the audience, then gives exposition and leaves. A little dog talking here isn't that funny for a whole movie. And, haha, following up on a problem I mentioned with MIB headquarters in the first movie, the villain played by Lara Flynn Boyle can just waltz into their place because it's also alien customs, and she tentacles everyone and takes over the place. If the men in black didn't keep their airport, police station, and armory all in the same set, this would not have happened. Will Smith as Jay realizes the retired Agent K has information on what a new MacGuffin is, the Light of Zartha. So we have to undo the ending of the first film with K forgetting he's a man in black. This would be more sad if we saw these characters as more fleshed-out people. Kay had a girlfriend he finally got back to, but I guess working for MIB for decades warped him into being this hard-edged Tommy Lee Jones guy. Kay gets some of his memories back, only some, 
And then the movie grinds on with an unfunny trail of clues Kay left for himself leading up to the VHS tape that shows the Light of Zartha event. If you give this plot any thought as well, it's kind of disturbing. Kay retired last movie, and rather than share information that might someday save the world, he kept all that to himself and then just had his memory erased. It was really irresponsible of him. Also irresponsible that he left a species of aliens trapped inside a locker at Grand Central Station. Like, would they eventually die in there? What did Kay think would happen to them in 40 or 50 years after he was long dead? I know, I know, the aliens in the locker is all just a joke. But considering the joke isn't funny, Kay just seems more and more irresponsible. The men in black need to fight Lara Flynn Boyle and get the Light of Zartha to a secret location before a specific time. And I'm wondering why. Seriously, this movie has script problems. They're copying the MacGuffin and time limit from the end of the first movie, but I'm not sure of what will happen if they're late, or who or what is endangering the Earth. And I've been ignoring a big component to this movie. Rosario Dawson, looking as cute as a button, is really the light of Zartha. It's no fault of hers, but her character honestly has no personality. Cute is literally her defining feature. I don't know. This movie needed to explain its threat better. Seriously, why is there a time limit? Also, if you're going to recontextualize 1950s and 60s B-movies, maybe you needed more than two jokes? I don't know, have Will Smith make fun of the theremin sound and everything, only that ends up being how a spaceship actually sounds like. Have them meet an old Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon-style actor, only to reveal that actor really has something important to contribute, or had a genuine space adventure in the 50s. Hell, get William Shatner to cameo just to goof off on the idea more. He'd be perfect for a hammy cameo in this. I'm not even saying I have the best ideas here, but they definitely needed something more for this movie. And they needed to explain what the threat is. This is the worst Men in Black movie. Miami equals black mass, black gloves with a little bit of rope attack. I flipped it, black suits, white shirts, black glasses with a matching tag. Like Agent J or Agent K, and I wish the whole world would. I'm trying to make a billion out of 15 cents Understand, understood, I'm a hope Yeah, move and shake a culture Bury a board, a record, break a won't you Give credit where credit is due, don't you Know that I don't give a number two Y'all just halfway thoughts Not worth the back of my mind But to understand the future We have to go back in time Interesting that it took another 10 years or 15 years from the original, for Men in Black to return for a third movie in 2012. Ha, I was complaining about Frank the Pug. I think Barry Sonnenfeld and everyone realized the mistake they made there in number two. Here, no Frank at all, except weirdly for a photo of him in Jay's bedroom, just to have some sort of reference. But yeah, they're definitely course-correcting and don't want to have Frank around now. Oh, speaking of which... It's odd that the Men in Black have private apartments. Yeah, they just have normal, private apartments across New York City, and not back at MIB HQ. The whole thing about having no family ties, no identity, nobody will remember you, I just kind of figured that they all lived at the headquarters. Huh. 
Anyway, Rip Torn is gone from the series now. Turns out he had always been combative and had assaulted other people on sets for years. In 2010, he was armed with an unlicensed gun and broke into a bank. He claimed to the court he was intoxicated, which I'm sure he was, and confused and thought he was in his own home. This sounds kind of sad, especially considering he would die from Alzheimer's in 2019, but apparently he had a long history of substance abuse and acting violently, so maybe Alzheimer's didn't change him so much as reveal who he was even more. Regardless, a judge put him on probation, and when this movie came out in 2012, Sonnenfeld made the wise decision to just kill off the Zed character. I will say this, it ends up being one of the better jokes in Men in Black 3. Tommy Lee Jones's K gives the eulogy for Zed. I worked with Zed for over 40 years, and in all that time, he never invited me to dinner. He never asked me to his house to watch a game. He never shared a single detail of his personal life. Thank you. And now we will hear from our new chief, Agent O. Thank you, Agent K. That was very moving. That was your eulogy? He was a good man. Ha, I like that. Replacing Rip Torn is Emma Thompson as Agent O. She's great. She's also one of the few actors who will cross over to Men in Black International years later. Now to the plot. Here's something funny the cartoon fans have pointed out. The cartoon series already did this movie's plot. In one episode, someone goes back in time to assassinate the founders of MIB, thus making Earth defenseless in the present. Here for the movie, our villain comes from the distant planet of... New Zealand. It's Jemaine Clement. You know, from The Flight of the Concords, Done up in prosthetics as an evil alien. It's a good transformation. Also, too gross at times, with monsters crawling out of orifices in his hands and ugly claws on his feet. He's gross all around. I don't like it. Anyway, Jemaine has a grudge against Agent K. He also knows where to track down a time travel device and then travels back in time to kill K in the past. Right off the bat, look, I'm not going to complain about time travel being introduced into MIB. Whatever, this series can do lots of crazy things. It is fine. What's weird to me is that the Men in Black are all about secretly covering up and owning all the weird sci-fi stuff they come across. But here's this human who they're pretty sure just knows how to make time travel devices. Eh, whatever. We're not going to lock him up, or put him in our base, or even keep an eye on him. We're not going to mind wipe the fact that he knows how to travel through time. Might be a good idea, but we're just not going to. So there is time travel now. But that's not even really important. The whole point is just to get the Men in Black to do secret stuff with the Apollo 11 mission. Get it? Humanity reached the moon in 1969, and now that whole real-life mission is tied up with Men in Black secrets and alien plots. That's the hook this go-round. I will say this, the time travel visual was interesting, and did some things I hadn't seen before. Will Smith needs to jump off the Chrysler building, and on his way down he sees people falling to their deaths from the stock market crash in 1929. He sees buildings being assembled. It's a neat visual. And young Agent K is played by Thanos himself, Josh Brolin. 
you know, he does a great job convincing you he's a younger Tommy Lee Jones. I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm just saying he does a good job giving you of that impression. It's better than Ewan McGregor playing a young Alec Guinness or what's-his-name playing a young Harrison Ford in Solo. Josh Brolin is pretty darn convincing. Now here's something they could have done better. They've updated the Men in Black headquarters set. That's fine. That's cool. But when Jay travels back in time, the set is still the same. See, what they should have done is have a new set in the present and have Will Smith even comment that they've finally done renovations. Then he gets back to 1969, and it's the set we saw from the previous movies. Not only would that be logical, it would have been a visual representation of the present versus the past. It's weird that they didn't do that. Anyway, in the past... Brolin's K is all set to wipe Jay's memories in a rather funny scene where the Neuralizer isn't this pocket device, but this giant whirly gig they strap Jay into. An okay joke on older technology being bulkier. But of course, K believes Jay just in time, and they go out tracking the villainous Jemaine Clement. Gah, there's a scene I'm of two minds about. Okay, they go to the factory, as in Andy Warhol's loft, and attend one of Warhol's art parties, a happening. This is some classic stuff from the first movie again. Okay, okay, Jay knows the score. There's all these freaky art types that are actually aliens. And then we meet Andy Warhol, played very well by Bill Hader. And you're wondering if he's an alien. Nope, Andy Warhol's actually an undercover man in black, infiltrating the art scene for no real reason at all. It's a great subversion of a subversion, playing off how you think these movies already operate. It's very good, and made more fun when Jay professes he likes Andy Warhol's artwork. And then Andy Warhol goes, Oh, you do, huh? Then you're an idiot. All of Andy Warhol's artwork was just done, ironically, or because this MIB agent had no better idea on what to do besides painting soup cans and record hamburgers being eaten. That, that is a good joke. Now for bad jokes. This scene is transphobic. After comparing aliens to foreigners in the past, now Agent Andy Warhol says he's freaked out because he can't tell the genders apart in the art scene. See, he thinks being trans is kind of like being an alien. Bah, that sucks. They also do that thing where a woman speaks with a man's voice as if that's a good joke. Whatever, movie... While I'm critiquing, I might as well move back a ways. The actor Tommy Lee Jones was 66 and wasn't about to do anything too strenuous in this movie. His one action scene is him standing in place in a Chinese restaurant, firing a pew-pew weapon while Will Smith had to run around and get flung around and stuff. That's all fine, but the problem was the racism I talked about from the earlier movie. A big part of the scene is, hey, do you know how Chinese restaurants serve you stuff you, that's right, you, American viewer, cannot identify? What if they're really serving you chopped up alien monsters? I don't see this as a one-off thing. I see it really as drawing a connection between alien weirdness and the bad trope of Chinese restaurants serving up gross food. I do not like this. People criticized that scene when the movie came out. And by the way, that scene lasts for a while, making that joke repeatedly on the grossness of how alien Chinese food is. And that's really not cool, movie. Anyway, 1969. 
Jay and Young K meet an alien played by Michael Stolbarg. Uh, how you might know Michael Stolbarg. He's in The Shape of Water, and he's the rival surgeon in the Doctor Strange movie. Anyway, Michael Stolbarg is interesting because he's not just an alien from another planet, but he's an alien to our universe. He's not quite omniscient, but is always talking about the probabilities of what will happen if X and Y things collide, so he's fully aware of Jay's problem of trying to fix the future. Stolbarg's alien also has a gift. Yet another MacGuffin! Can't have a MIB movie without a MacGuffin, everybody! Here it's called the ArcNet, and it's a tiny doohickey that Kay must attach to the Apollo 11 rocket before it launches into space. If he does this, then Earth will have a special shield preventing guys like Jermaine Clement from invading Earth. A lot has been made about this movie how the ArcNet might invalidate the previous two movies. So the ArcNet is established in 1969, and it didn't stop the threats from the last two movies happening. Hey, what gives? I'll give it to you that it's goofy, but I'll point out that the ArcNet clearly only defends Earth from Jermaine Clement's species. It won't stop alien bugs or that tentacle monster. Now, why it only stops alien Jermaine Clements, I don't know, but them's the rules. Like I said, it's a MacGuffin. Should I spoil the touching revelation of Part 3? It's okay, if kinda weird. It's set up earlier that Jay never knew his dad, which, that's a whole thing that I can't help but think was influenced by Will Smith's father being abusive and then abandoning his family. But anyway, here, Jay didn't know his dad, and then at the end of the movie, a colonel gets some secret information whispered to him by the Stelberg alien, the future-telling alien, and that information causes the colonel to help Jay and Kay. You can see this coming from a mile away. The colonel dies, only for him to be revealed as Jay's father, and he knew he was helping his adult son from the future. Oh, that's heavy, Doc. I can't help but think something's going on there, with Will Smith's actual dad not being present for much of his life, to his movie dad, here, being absent from Jay's life because he died a hero. That's my thinking, anyway. And to drive this point home, Josh Brolin's Kate needs to interact with the little son, Jay, right there, and mind-wipe him, and inform him that his dad died a hero without letting him know any of the details. That's so heavy for this goofy film series. It's also weird that, like, in some of the final moments of our time with Jay, we're left with this really depressing information about his childhood. What's also weird is that it recontextualizes Kay's interest in Jay joining the Men in Black back in 97. We always assumed it was because Jay was quick, he was determined, and a rule-breaker as a cop. But now, we learn Kay felt guilty over Jay's dad dying, and maybe now he knows it's almost fate for Jay to join the MIB? Okay, but is Kay, like, going to be a part of little Jay's life growing up at all? Maybe become a surrogate father figure to him for all those years? No, he's just not gonna see him? Man, this movie is messed up! I think that's a problem. These movies are goofy and fun and weird, so if you try to inject pathos in the final few minutes, it always just comes off as totally bizarre. Should we really care about J and K? Were we supposed to care about Rosario Dawson last movie? Do we care that in each movie, K has a love life that doesn't work out? 
I think Barry Sonnenfeld directs like we should care about these characters. We should care about their relationships and Jay's dad dying. But the plots matter so little and the action is so goofy that this doesn't work out. I like Jay and Kay well enough, but caring about Jay's childhood in our final few minutes with the character is too much to ask, especially when the first movie made it a point of not showing his personal life. Oh, and to sum up, Men in Black 3, warts and all, is probably the second best Men in Black movie. We are a rumor. Recognizable only as deja vu and dismissed just as quickly. Time to prove yourself, Agent M. We may have a problem in London. Welcome to MIB. You will be with Agent Peach, one of the best ever to wear this suit. Catching up on my daily meditation. Time for lunch, I think. Are you hungry? It's 9.30. Perfect. Tuesday's taco day. We've been compromised. It puts every citizen of this planet at risk. We're saying goodbye to Barry Sonnenfeld, Will Smith, and Tommy Lee Jones for Men in Black International in 2019. The first thing to say about this movie is that it's honestly part of a concerted push from Sony Pictures. Of course, every movie studio wants to make money, but in the 2010s, Sony saw it was falling behind Disney and Warner Brothers' plans to build on its big properties. Sony needed to get its own properties back into the spotlight. That's honestly why Ghostbusters was revived in 2016, and Charlie's Angels was revived in 2019. Hey, both of those movies were reviving Columbia Pictures properties while just using the original titles. They were just called Ghostbusters and Charlie's Angels. Huh. Anyway, the point really was that they were relaunching Ghostbusters and Charlie's Angels, and Men in Black International was the third property in this big push. And you can immediately tell what was happening based on the casting. Thor Ragnarok came out in 2017, starring Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson, who had great chemistry on screen. Meanwhile, Sony also had Hemsworth as a part of Ghostbusters in 2016. Hey, let's just borrow that goodwill of Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson working together, only now we make them Men in Black to relaunch this property. It's not a bad line of thought. And the movie is okay. It's fine. Which is not the home run Sony wanted. Here are some problems. So the casting is very good, but you know how in the previous movies, Tommy Lee Jones is unfazed by every weird thing, while Will Smith has these big reactions? Well, okay, okay. Here's my pitch, everybody. 
what if uh, Chris Hemsworth uh, is really handsome and charming? Uh, uh, nah. I'm not saying it's impossible to make a comedy out of a guy being handsome and charming, but it's much more difficult than, say, someone who's awkward or goofy. The movie also tells us that H, who I'm pretty sure was just named after Hemsworth himself, but the movie keeps telling us that H is bad at his job, and yet he's the most relaxed agent around, but he also succeeds in every mission. I don't really understand this supposed character problem when he's still stopping bad guys. Tessa Thompson's M also doesn't totally make sense on screen. She's the new recruit, but she also seems to understand things better than everyone else? Sometimes? See, when put together, the movie can't decide which lead is really smart and capable, and which one is the novice. And is Hemsworth a screw-up? Or is he actually super capable and smooth at his job? This movie cannot decide on any of these things, and apart from Thompson and Hemsworth's natural charisma, the movie can't decide what the comedy dynamic is between them. But there's the other big problem with Men in Black International. It doesn't really want to be an MIB adventure. It wants to be James Bond. Agents have a globe-spanning adventure, tracking down villains. There's a Casino Royale-style card game that ends in a fight that would fit with Daniel Craig. H also has a past relationship with a femme fatale alien mob boss. Huh. In an okay joke early on, H is only saved because he's willing to have sex with an alien who has the hots for him, which again, actually seems more in line with James Bond. So yes, this is all really James Bond stuff with sci-fi elements tacked on. They have rocket chases through the streets of Marrakesh, and okay, they take time to neuralize some bystanders, but it's obvious the movie really wants a James Bond chase and would prefer we just ditch the secret organization premise entirely. There's an intimidating duo of alien fighters who would fit in Daniel Craig's movies, though they're also obviously inspired by those albino twins from Matrix Reloaded. What are some other bits? Bits. Liam Neeson is the boss of the UK branch of Men in Black. He plays High T, which is a cute pun. Get it? Like evening tea time, high tea. Ah. It's kind of odd, though. The UK branch is in charge of Europe and apparently Northern Africa. I'm sure there's nothing to this, but it kind of fits in with the UK's politics around the time of Brexit. Of course London would be in charge of Europe and surrounding areas. Never mind the fact that most of our plot hinges on the Eiffel Tower in Paris. More overlap with the animated series. The MIB apparently have a super high-speed train running underground all over the world, and it's just for them. That's in the animated series as well. Oh, Rafe Spall is here playing a slimy MIB agent, who you're supposed to suspect is a traitor. He's playing the same sort of guy he did as the villain of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. It's funny when you see an actor typecast like that. And we have returning characters. Emma Thompson is back as O from Men in Black 3, and after a 17-year absence, Frank the Pug is back, and voiced by Tim Blaney again. This time, he works. It's just a little obligatory joke cameo. Hey everyone, remember the first movie? It's not hilarious, but it generates some quick, positive nostalgia, and then he's out of the movie. Oh, I've got one more criticism, 
The whole movie is based around a MacGuffin. Again! That's all four movies now. There was the galaxy on the cat's neck, the light of Zartha, which was really a person, but still never explained why she was special or what could she do. There was the Arknet, and here we have an incredibly powerful crystal, which is actually a miniature star that can be blasted out as a weapon. And all of these MacGuffins also had time limits applied to them. They had to always get the doohickey to the right spot at the right time, or Earth was doomed. That's every movie. The cartoon series had a greater variety of plots than this. Oh yeah, but Men in Black International? It's fine. Which is not a strong recommendation. In order, I think the original Men in Black is the best movie. 3 is pretty enjoyable, except for some unfortunate mean parts. Then International is right on the edge. It is only okay. And MIB 2 is an actual bad movie. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. And that wraps up Men in Black. Not the greatest series of movies, but I was pleased I went through all of them, and the cartoon series to boot. Again, if you're Canadian, the CTV website is a great place to start. The Blu-ray discs of the movies are also fairly cheap, if you're a cool dude like me who still buys discs. I have no idea what the future of Men in Black holds. Oh hey, after years in board game development hell, just this year a Men in Black Ghostbusters crossover board game came out. Huh, neat. It's called Ecto-Terrestrial Invasion. So I don't know what's in the future for Men in Black. International didn't really lose money, but it also didn't set the world on fire, and I don't think another movie is in the cards right now. Hey, what do I recommend? I'd say lower the stakes all around, as in bring the budgets down and make it a streaming show. Turn it back into a humorous cop procedural, and no more we gotta find this thingamabob to save the earth in two hours. No, 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 cut that out. Instead, do plots of an alien was murdered. Who are some crazy characters we can talk to before we unravel this mystery? Or they've got to protect an important alien from assassination. Or the men in black must stop an alien drug cartel, but the drug is something common to humans on Earth? Like it's vinegar or something, but it's intoxicating to some aliens. Back in 97, for a TV show, you could only do something that wacky on a cartoon budget, but now CGI and production values are good enough, you could do it live action and get a lot more adult viewers. Anyway, that's what I would do if I was trying to continue the men in black property. Thanks for listening. I'm Ross May. See, I got this right. Yeah, yeah. I'm Ross May, and you can follow me on Twitter at Ross May Writer, or go to rossmaywriter.com to find my email there. I'll talk to you later, but for now... Thank you for listening to yet another true crime podcast. You feel satisfied about it, but will quickly forget all the details of the crime like every other true crime podcast. Have a pleasant day.